New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Today I'm hosting Terry Tempest-Williams. She's the author of The Hour of Land, a personal topography of America's national parks. Terry, welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Thank you, Justine. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. Um, Terry, why are our national parks important and what should we be doing to help preserve them? I think our national parks are crucial uh, to us as human beings. They're breathing spaces at a time where we are increasingly holding our breath. They're memory palaces. They're tied to our families. They remind us that we are not the only species who live and breathe and dream on this planet we call home. I'm just thinking of how, at least here in the U.S., we've been addicted to adrenaline rushes, you know, I mean, it's true. and uh, yet these precious moments that you're talking about, these breathing spaces, are they the opposite of adrenaline rushes? You know, you bring up such a great point, um, because I do think our national parks and certainly our public lands are so much more than places of recreation and retail. Uh, places of commerce, adrenaline, as as you say. I mean, no one loves to to walk more than I do, or you know, certainly in a lifetime of hiking and backpacking and and running the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon or the Snake River in Jackson Hole. Um, but I think when it's all said and done, I do think it's about solitude and deep listening and a regard for other species, a sense that. Our notion of community includes all life forms, plants, animals, rocks, rivers, and human beings, and to really think in a much deeper way about our human history, both the people that our national parks have displaced, as well as the Native people who are asking for more land to be protected, as we are seeing in Bears Ears uh, National Monument, the proposal that over 25 tribes in the Colorado Plateau, the Hopi, the Diné, Navajo, and Ute tribes and Zuni are advocating for. The President Obama will see this as a moment of healing between indigenous people and the United States government. So our national parks are much more complicated than just a place to put on your running shoes or you know, set trail on your mountain bike. I think that they really are the closest thing we have to sacred lands. You go through 12 different parks, and they're very different uh, from one another, from Gettysburg uh, National Battlefield Park uh, to um, Big Ben Park in uh, South Texas and on the Mexican border. And, and in that particular park, I remember you were talking about uh, you took a walk and coming back, and maybe Brooke, your husband, was with you, and and coming back, you noticed these paw prints 
of a mountain lion, and you realized you had been watched. Yes. It's it's humbling, right? You know, again, it's that we share this planet with others. And I remember being able to smell that lion and that the paw print was the size of my hand. And, you know, it was not there going up, but it was certainly there coming back, and we had been followed. And I think, you know, if I ever disappear, Justine, it'll be in in Big Bend National Park. I just fell in love with it. And, you know, the desert is not a void. It is my unknowing. It's, It's this erosional landscape where change is is life and i think as human beings we're so shocked by change we we want things to remain the same the desert tells us there is no such thing even tracks that appear uh, i remember uh, living on the side of uh, duncan peak in hopland california which was actually sacred indian land before the spanish uh, arrived and i don't think that the indians or the native peoples there um, actually lived on the mountain. It was sacred to them, and they they wouldn't live there. It was a place for them to visit. I, and I always felt strongly about that. But I remember walking out after some rain and uh, taking a walk on the land, and I looked down and I thought, oh, I wonder what dog has been roaming around up here. And then I looked again, and there was something in me that instinctively knew the hairs on the back of my neck just went went up and I looked and I thought this track is much too big for a dog and it's too deep for a dog this animal weighs a lot more than a dog and I realized it was a mountain lion that had come through wow it's just it's so powerful right it's so thrilling and it puts us in our place. You know, for my father's 80th birthday, we all went, our extended family went to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, to Grand Teton National Park. We went up to Inspiration Point. Uh, my father was 80. Wyatt was barely one. So four generations on the trail. When we came back down... So Wyatt was the great-grandson. Exactly. Yes. We all got down. We were sitting, you know, on the edge of the parking lot, just kind of drinking water. Honestly... Right then, a grizzly walked right in front of us. And I don't know what this says about our family, but we all stood up. And the grizzly stood up. And there we were. And then the grizzly ran. But, you know, to to see this great being upright on two legs roar, I mean, we'll never get over it. And... You know, to me, this is what our national parks hold for us, are these miraculous moments, humbling moments, thrilling moments of awe and wonder and respect. I've read, Terry, that um, when they reintroduced wolves into Yellowstone, that something has taken place in a very positive way with the uh, rivers uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Right. As John Muir said, you know, when you look at anything, right. you realize that everything, it's not a single thing, it's everything is connected to everything else in the universe. You know, when, I think it was in 1995, um, wolves were reintroduced 
we went back up, and there was a very different sensibility of that landscape. The elk were more skitterish. The coyotes, I don't want to say they've been demoted, but they found their place on the periphery of where the wolf packs were. You didn't have the same kind of erosional breakdown of the the river embankments. There was a scattering rather than this gathering of, of the ungulates that you saw, whether it was the bison or the elk. It suddenly became a wilder place. And then at night on, on those full moons, you would hear this deep, seated howl. And you knew that all was right with the world. And I still feel that way now. You know, when you go up to Yellowstone, especially in the Lamar Valley, the wolves are there. And the elk know it, the bison know it, the coyotes know it, the eagles, the ravens. It's amazing how the reintroduction of one species can do a chiropractic shift on the landscape itself. And and they are keystone species, aren't they? uh, They are. And, you know, they also bear our projections. And so right now, you know, you're also seeing fierce conversations among the agencies and among citizens. Should the grizzly bear be delisted? Should the wolves be delisted? And what happens as a result? So the equilibrium doesn't stay intact very long. And I think that's one of the surprises about riding the hour of land is to realize our national parks aren't just ecological parks, aren't just historical parks. They are deeply political parks. And I think we as citizens have a tremendous opportunity to speak on behalf of the integrity of these public lands. Because if we don't, they are being fractured just as our own public policies are being fractured. Whether it's health care, whether it's issues of poverty, whether it's banks of the river or banks that are, are too big to fail, the open space of democracy is very much alive in our national parks and public lands. That's a very powerful statement. And I know that uh, the mandate for public parks and and national parks is very kind of schizophrenic, I think, in in some ways. Well, certainly in a state like Utah or what we saw at Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon, um, we have a governor, Gary Herbert, and a congressman, Rob Bishop, who want to take the public out of public lands. They want our public lands, public commons, to be returned to the private sector, to be able to be sold. Um, It is not real estate. It is real ground with real species, with real ecological concerns that I think we have to protect. I'm not saying that, that our public lands aren't multiple use lands where we do have timber, where we do have mining, where we do have oil and gas development. But I think it all has to be weighed with a sense of balance, particularly at this time when we are now faced with climate change. We've never been here before. So then you have questions, you know, do we want to have oil and gas development on our public lands? Do we want to pull fossil fuels out of the ground? Or now do we begin a different conversation of keeping our fossil fuels in the ground? Now, on one final note, for those of us, let's say, who will never visit a national park, for those of us who live within a city and would never get out there and say, well, this has nothing to do with me. 
What would you say to that person? What I would say is what I heard when I was 21 years old at a hearing in Denver, Colorado, on behalf of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. A young man, a blind piano tuner, took a bus, went to the hearing, and said, Representative Cyberling, I will never see the Arctic. But just knowing it is there allows me to see inwardly what that landscape looks like. Please protect it. So I think even though we may never, I've never been to the Great Smoky National Park, I have a sense of that Blue Ridge. I have a sense of mountains after mountains after mountains. Even though I've never been there, it holds a history of the Appalachian Trail. It holds a history of the Native people who live there. So I think that our national parks belong to our national imaginations, plural, diverse, ongoing, past, future, umbilicus. Terry, I want to thank you so much for putting together this wonderful volume that I highly recommend to everyone and uh, for being with us today on the New Dimensions Cafe. Thank you so much, Justine. I love you. I love you, too. I've been here with Terry Tempest-Williams. Her newest book is The Hour of Land, A Personal Topography of America's National Parks. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, coyoteclan.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Thank you so much for joining us on the New Dimensions Cafe. And I ask you, please do join us again. You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a 1,000 hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.